Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to discuss AMD's new big Navi line, and it sounds amazing. They've conveniently leaked some specs that have us all on the edge of our seats, waiting for what the big reveal is going to be with AMD. We're also going to cover NVIDIA's very unfortunate issues with their GPU boost on their brand new GPUs. Then we're going to head to the popular camera corner with Wendy, where we discuss the minimum specs needed for image editing. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. So let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week, and you better have had some. Michael, what have you been up to, man? Oh yeah, I've got some stuff. Actually, I have some really cool stuff that I kind of rediscovered. My brother actually is being is moving recently, and while they were doing their move, I spent a couple hours in their basement getting all my stuff that I had left in their house because that's what people do. Oh, you're one of those uh, people. You no, 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 no. It wasn't, it people. wasn't there for a long time. It was only 10 years. It's okay. So only 10 years. Yeah. yeah that's it was, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but on the bright side, what I found after those 10 years is that I had left a bunch of retro consoles, like ga- video game consoles mm. in the basement, which includes a lot like the original Nintendo NES. Also, it had the a P- PS2, a PS1, the original Xbox, and my super favorite, super excited to find it again, Sega Dreamcast. Hey, Wendy, have and- you ever oh, yeah. left that much of something so great at somebody else's house? Uh, it was my brother. It's different. That's okay. No. Yeah, because that's family. a lot of awesome things you just named off there, Michael. And you just kind of conveniently forgot you had all these retro consoles sitting there? Yes, but I also <laughs> conveniently found them again, and now it's like it's like Christmas. It's like I got a bunch of stuff all at once, and it's like yes. And I it, oh I forgot it was also an N sixty four as well. There was a couple things that I was super excited about, but the Dreamcast is easily the thing I'm most excited about because there's also not only was it just the consoles, there was a few games with each one of the consoles too. So I'm gonna play everything because reasons. Okay, I got to ask, why is the Dreamcast out of all of those systems? And I'm not disagreeing with you, but why for you was that the most special? It was the first game. It was the first game console that had internet, actual internet multiplayer gameplay. And it was like the, it was way ahead of its time. We, we got that when it was like the brand new and it was before the PS1. And it was just it, like compared to the N64 and that era, the Sega Dreamcast was just amazing in that, in that period. And I was just a huge fan of it. It's mostly nostalgia now because you compare it to your phone now and it's not as good. But uh, it had Crazy Taxi, for example, and it had a bunch of other games like Soul Calibur and just a ton. Uh, so I just a fan overall of the Dreamcast at the time. Now, there was also a lot of other stuff that was there because I also found in addition to that, I found my original Zelda for the NES. And so that's cool. There's a lot of stuff. I'm happy to have uh, rediscovered stuff I already owned. (laughs) 
That's amazing. Now, do you plan to sell any of it or are you going to keep it all? No, just keep it all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I don't, I don't see a reason to get rid of the hardware. Well, Wendy, I'm guessing <laughs> like you haven't uncovered some amazing treasure trove of old hardware because you would put all your hardware to use. But what hardware adventures have you had nonetheless? We have had a series of headphone earbud adventures around our house. So my husband's wireless Bluetooth headphones broke and I ordered him some new ones. And for the most part, we try to keep his on a fairly inexpensive level because he's constantly in the dirt, in the dust, you know, that kind of stuff. And it is extremely hard on equipment, especially Bluetooth headphones and stuff. And the pair that showed up for him, like he's out mowing the lawn, the phone is in his pocket and it keeps constantly disconnecting. So he's upset because it's not working and he hands it to me and says, hey, make this work better. Like, well, there's not really any way that I can do that. It's a connectivity issue. And so I put the earbuds on and I'm walking all around the house listening to the book that he had up. And, you know, it's not having any issues with me. My daughter puts it on and she's able to walk all around the house and not have any issues. So it comes down to the fact that my husband's grandpa couldn't even wear a watch because they would die. They would just die on his wrist. And my husband doesn't have that extreme of a problem, but he really struggles with Bluetooth headsets and just having the connectivity between the two working properly. So what's it like being married to Magneto? (laughs) 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 Well, for him, it's extremely frustrating. And for me, I guess it would be a little bit frustrating too because it's hard to know which hardware has enough because it's it's not with every single piece of, of headphones some work better than others so i don't know whether it's maybe insulated against him that it needs to be i'm, I'm not sure the difference between you the should ones check that work the box and see don't. if it has like compatibility with adamantium <laughs> well i think this is fascinating that you tell this story wendy when our big story has a lot to do with electrical interference And I'm thinking we get your husband in touch with NVIDIA and we could solve this whole GPU problem because they could just have them stand next to the video card when they're testing, (laughs) pay them a big check for that. (laughs) And if it works, we're good. See, the thing is, is he is so hard on any hardware. If you want to know if something is tough or can handle his strange electrical conductivity issues like he, he's willing to test so if you want to know if it can handle my husband which most things can't then he's he's agreed send it on over he'll test it and i'll let you know for sure does it work or does it not work i love it well did you find <laughs> any headphones that would meet the criteria the the second set that he went ahead and ordered and i'm not even sure what they are they seem to work better for him so it's it's just a hit or miss. And I've been wanting to buy him a really nice set of Bluetooth headphones, hoping that they might last a little bit longer. But it's that issue of I'm afraid to get them, give them to them. They don't work. And then I've essentially bought myself a brand new set of headphones. <laughs> that sounds like a win-win. <laughs> it either works yeah, or Yeah, I don't see the problem here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Ryan, what have you been up to this week? 
I have been talking about in prior episodes my love for the Intel Nook. Now, that hasn't changed, but what did happen is my Nook's fans started whining. Now, I've taken the Nook apart on my YouTube channel, Das Geek channel, and shown the easy ease of getting inside of this little device. It even comes with the Allen wrench to open it up. It's made to get inside, but you have to flip the entire logic board kind of out of it in order to get to the fans, but they're doing this high-pitched whining noise. And it's not stopping the performance. It's still keeping it cool, but probably one of the bearings or something has gone bad in it. So I'm trying to find the new fans to replace it with. And unfortunately, the model I have does not appear to have a lot of the fans, at least specifically mentioned in any listings for replacement. So I'm going to have to get creative here and I'll probably do a follow-up in the next Hardware Addicts of the solution I found of maybe doing some custom fans inside of this if I can't find the original ones that came with the device, which in itself would be fun. Or, heck, maybe I'll just water cool the little nook. I mean, we could do all kinds of fun things with this. But that's kind of been what's on my mind today. And that, and I talked a little bit on Destination Linux about this Maker Block MBOT that I used with the kids. It's a kit that you, a little robot that you build. It has a beautiful steel frame and you know, using steel screws to build this robot's very tough and they get to also learn to program. I just love this thing. I have a video of it out there on my channel. You can see how much fun the kids are having with it. But during this time, if you're looking for some additional STEM educational tools and things or just want to teach yourself, because as an adult, I had a lot of fun building this thing too. Uh, build a little robot. I definitely recommend checking out Mbot. It's for beginner skill level. So if you've never taken anything apart or built something before, this would be a really good kit to start off with. And you don't have to solder anything. It's all just screws. Nice. Yeah, that's really cool. And I also think it's really cool that they have the theme music from the Hansons. Imbot. Oh, my gosh. You Wow. wow. I did. It took me a second, but now now I'm now I'm disappointed. <laughs> Perfect. That was the goal. This episode of Radix is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With with the app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point your GitHub repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products. Plus, they built this new app platform on top of the DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of Hardware Addicts Podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, better than free actually, because you can get started on DigitalOcean with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. All right, so it's time to start the GPU wars here. Now, everyone we talked about it on this podcast was just expecting a flawless victory when it came to NVIDIA's latest GeForce RTX 30 series launch. Everything they had just had me drooling as a hardware addict. I was impressed. The hardware, the level of effort into their presentation, it was just kind of a joy to watch. Unfortunately, 
when everyone got their hands on the cards, an issue started popping up all over the internet. First started with the forums, then it spread through YouTube. And this issue was that these cards were crashing. The, the running theory of why these cards are crashing comes down to, and this is just the theory, but it seems to be pretty legit. And a lot of people are basically testing this out and finding that if these cards have certain capacitors, this issue is not happening. And if it has the other type of capacitors or capacitor arrangement, I should say, it is happening. So the capacitors are generating this electrical interference when there's not a series of alternate, more expensive to manufacture, but not necessarily put on the board, MLCC capacitors in the mix. So if they have the mix of both of those types of capacitors in certain arrangement, fine, no electrical interference, no issues. If they don't have that mix, then they do have the issue. Now, what's interesting is the founding edition of the cards are not having the problem. So NVIDIA has on their founders editions, which come straight from NVIDIA, the actual correct arrangement of capacitors. So when you hit the boost clock, everything's fine. The third party companies that are creating these video cards are the ones that sent out these cards based on NVIDIA spec, likely, and they are crashing anytime they go to that boost clock speed. Knowing that, you know, on the ones directly coming from NVIDIA and them using these higher higher quality capacitors, I wonder why that wasn't put on as, you know, running these cards because of what they've done with them and the higher amount of power that is going through these cards, why that wasn't put as when you're making these as a third party, these higher quality capacitors are required. Yeah, I, I think that it was a miss on NVIDIA's part. I'm guessing that they just didn't put it into the spec. Maybe they didn't think they needed it. Maybe they didn't realize that that arrangement that they had was necessary. Now, some third-party manufacturers on the higher-end scale, like I think there's some EVGA cards and things, do have the proper arrangement. So they noticed it. But others who just kind of went by the spec and released it without doing a lot of quality control... Definitely. And again, this only happens at the boost clock speeds. So if you're not doing quality control, that's having that card hit those boost clocks for a significant period of time, you may not have noticed it. I bet they're doing that now. The biggest problem though, is there's no real easy fix. If this is truly the problem for this, meaning you can't just go have all of them send all the cards back because nobody's going to do that and re-solder on some new capacitors. And the only way you can really fix it from a consumer standpoint is to install some new software, which is just going to underclock your card so you don't hit those boost clocks. Yeah, you are. And that's not very nice. Well, the thing is, is you're not the, the quote unquote boost clock, as I kind of understood it, was this is an extra that you're getting. So it's not the official rated speed of the card and everything you get over that is a quote-unquote bonus. So while it really sucks that this brand new card that you spent a whole lot of money on is now getting a firmware update that reduces the overall boosting clock of your card, they never said that that's exactly what you're going to get. I, I find it a bummer all around, but that's kind of where you're sitting. 
It's fair, and these are still really fast cards. So if you're running one of these and you have to underclock it so it doesn't hit boost, you're still going to have a great experience, but you're not getting what's advertised. But, Wendy, you're 100% correct. Any card that's sold out there, even though they'll constantly talk about the boost clock speeds in their advertising and everything else, if you look at the fine print, they will always say that they don't guarantee that speed. So the, the boost clock speed is one of those things where consumers really have no option to go out there and necessarily easily, let's say, sue some of these companies if they don't fix the problem. It, it's still one of those things that just from a customer satisfaction standpoint is a huge bummer, but it's still a fast card. Let's let's not act like all of a sudden the card's worthless or a paperweight. I mean, it's still a very, very nice card. No, they're they're definitely not a paperweight. They have been a great card if you can get your hands on one. That's been one of the issues for consumers in general is they've sold out almost immediately. And then the people who were able to actually buy one when they got released, even though you know you're not guaranteed these boost speeds, it's always a bummer when you put this brand new card in your system and you're playing a game and then things crash, right? You don't expect your brand new card that you just purchased to crash your system. Yeah. How many people were building a brand new build or putting this card in and replacing everything else around it until they went online and realized there's some capacitor issue causing their crashing, you know, swapping out their RAM, trying different RAM, all kinds of things, wondering why their machines are crashing. It's a bad problem. None of these releases seem to go really well for either NVIDIA or AMD on the initial release. So for all of those with the monk-like hardware patients out there that are not the first ones in line to grab a card, you can rejoice because you win once again. Everybody's being the beta tester for you. And by the time these hit the shelves again, you're going to have yourself a card that can hit its boost clock and everything's going to be fine in NVIDIA land. And this will be one of those situations where, again, it's really good to go ahead and check reviews for the specific card you're looking at, because now knowing that this is a problem, a lot of reviewers are going to be opening up the cards, looking at the capacitors, and showing you what kind of configuration they have. And that can help you make your choice when you're purchasing your cards. Good point. Very good point. Now, Wendy, there was something else here that really got me drooling. And, you know, some people call me an AMD fanboy. It's not, it's not true. Partially <laughs> true. It's not true. AMD has been having some leaks happen around their big Navi GPU line. This is their direct competitor to the NVIDIA GeForce range. Now, AMD themselves basically have said that the AMD RDNA 2 based Radeon graphics card family is going to disrupt the gaming segment similar to how Ryzen disrupted the entire CPU landscape. That's what they're claiming. And did they ever disrupt the CPU landscape? They have, and I'm, I'm kind of hoping that this is true. My biggest worry, and you've experienced this firsthand, is when AMD typically initially launches, the driver side is horrible. It's not up to spec with the cards that they're putting out. So I'm hoping that they've learned that lesson and that when they put out these cards, their drivers are full force, ready to go and give you the power that AMD is offering in that card. 
I really love you brought that point up because I think it's so important to really give AMD some criticism here because they do so much right. And I love Lisa Sue, but their software team really needs help. And I know there has been some hiring on the AMD side in the driver department. So I'm really hoping we see a different turn this release, but you're 100% correct. My favorite video card ever to date that I've owned I've had all the NVIDIA 1070, 1080, 2070s. I've, I've had so many different cards, even on the AMD line, without a doubt was the Radeon 7. It was just, there was nothing I could throw at that card, not just from a gaming perspective, but from a video rendering, image editing perspective, that it would even make the fans spin up. It actually became like a thing where I tried to do stupid things on my computer just to see if the fans still worked on it because it just didn't care. Like none of, because of that HBM2 and that super high bandwidth memory that they put on there, it just ate everything up and never seemed to really, um, you know, sweat at all. And one of the things that had me really excited, because I know, Wendy, you wanted one of these Radeon 7s, is that there's a rumor one of these new GPUs they're releasing is going to come once again with HBM2 memory. Oh, man. I'm excited. That has me absolutely positively excited. I'm a little worried about what the cost is going to be. I know AMD has been generally... Come on, we'll pay anything, Wendy. Let's be honest here. <laughs> I'm super excited about it, too, because I know exactly what, what's that. What's what, Michael? What's the uh, HBM2? Is that what you said? High bandwidth memory. Yeah. So you don't see this very often because it's really expensive. It's made by Samsung. I think another company may manufacture it as well. But the whole idea behind it really to break it down between what you normally see in the GPU, like right now you see a lot of GDDR6 and HBM2 is that the HBM2 is made and perfect for things like artificial intelligence, blockchain, high-end games, video rendering, image editing, that type of stuff. It's huge bandwidth, so it can send massive chunks. The bus width on it's 3,092 bits for, compared to a GDR6, which is 256 bits. So you're talking what? this massive <laughs> lane that it can shoot wow. this massive package through and if you have a CPU and everything else that can eat that up, of course, you're just going to have an amazing experience. It's very expensive. It's not great for every application. For instance, a lot of cases like GDDR6 would be faster because those smaller stacks going across quicker for certain types of games and things like that. So generally gamers, VR, that type of thing, they like the GDDR6. If you're somebody who's a hybrid where you do a lot of video rendering, you do some cryptocurrency, really high-end gaming you're going to want to look at something like the HBM2 because you're just going to have um, a lot more power at your disposal. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Radeon 7 was such a hit. Once they got the drivers working, to Wendy's point, yeah. it was amazing. But at first launch, you know, it was hit or miss because the drivers really make everything. And this card with the HBM2 memory will be kind of the pet competitor to NVIDIA's 3090. So they said that their 3090 is really made for um, not necessarily the gamer, but the person using their computer for work. So doing a photo editing or more so 
video editing and, and that kind of processing. And this is where that card for AMD kind of fits into that space, which I wanted a Radeon 7 so bad and was super bummed when the prices went crazy. So I'm curious as to what the price is going to be for this one when it comes out. Because you know, I love my hardware, but at the same time, budget is also a major consideration. So what is the price to performance going to be on all of these AMD cards? I know that I am super excited for this launch on October 28th. That is a child's birthday, but you bet I'll be watching. Yeah, so this is really interesting because the rumor is that the big disruptor is that AMD's new video card, at least one of the, the big flagships, is going to be as fast in direct competition with the 3080, which means, you know, somewhere between 30 to 40% faster than the RTX 2080 Ti and direct competition with that 3080 sweet spot. So not necessarily the 3090, but here's the big disruptor if it's true. There's the rumor that it's going to be $100 cheaper than the 3080, which would put it about $599 for a flagship GPU here. And if that's the case, daddy wants one. Speaking of rumors, <laughs> one of the rumors going around is that NVIDIA postponed the 3070 launch to find out what AMD is doing for sure but more so what the prices are going to be on these cards. So if they need to adjust the price on the 3070 at launch, they can to be more competitive with AMD. NVIDIA is no dummy and we as the consumers win here, no matter what, Absolutely. right? So if you're, a, if you're an NVIDIA fan, you're going to win because you're going to get a chance to get your cards cheaper when AMD drops their new lineup, which is rumored to happen this month. Set your calendars. You know I'll be sitting there watching October 28th is when AMD is going to be the, do the big announcement. And I'm expecting to have a little fanboy geek squeal when Lisa Sue <laughs> takes the stage and shows off one of the GPUs. I'll probably squeal a little bit. Um, so if you hear that in your neighborhood, I'm probably your neighbor. But I, I'm very excited about this. When we talk about how far these have come, when you look at the GPU inside just the Xbox Series X, it's faster than NVIDIA's GeForce RTX 2080 Super and just behind the 2080 Ti. And that's pretty amazing to think about that even the consoles are releasing with GPUs that are this powerful right now. What we're going to be seeing from a game standpoint graphics in this next release because both of them are going to have hardware-based ray tracing we're just going to see a lot of cool things coming this year with this release of these cards, along with great pricing that we've already seen. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a really fun drop-tober. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no, Michael. Yeah, no. Yeah, go go yeah. back to uh, Hanson. Okay. No, Wait, no, they're both I, horrible. You didn't like that one either. <laughs> You're being too particular now. This episode of Hardware Addicts is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the open source password manager that I trust. I've been using Bitwarden for a while now and absolutely love it. They offer desktop applications, browser extensions, and mobile apps. So I can get and use my unique passwords no matter what device I'm on or quickly generate a unique password regardless of whether I'm on the go or sitting at my computer at home. Want some of their premium features like one gig of file storage of Vault Health reports 
or just support the project. Premium starts at only $10 a year. Jump over to bitwarden.com slash DLN and get started with your free account today. All right, Wendy. So take us into the camera corner. I love how you tied this in to the whole hardware addicts, hardware aspect. What are the minimum hardware requirements when we're looking at photo editing systems? So when we're talking about minimums this time, we're not talking about, you know, large batch, huge file processing. We're talking about what's going to get you some of the best basic performance for your day-to-day. I've taken some pictures with my phone. I've taken some pictures with, you know, my real camera, I guess you'd say. But, you know, you're not doing large batch or major multi-layer processing. And when it comes to CPUs, you can get away with a fourth generation i5. I wouldn't go i3 and I wouldn't go less than their four core eight thread models. You want something. And, and this is one of those things that when we're talking about CPUs, Darktable can use multiple CPUs, but you have to have, or multiple threads, but you have to have enough RAM there. So we'll get to RAM in a little bit. But if you're on, say, a Windows machine and you're using Photoshop, the most important thing for Photoshop is single core clock speed. So while having one of those, you know, huge thread rippers might seem nice, when you're coming down to actually getting work done, your advantage would be to go with a CPU that has less cores but higher single core core clock speed, that's when you're going to get the best performance. Um, the fourth generation i5s, you can pick up, you know, a huge system for a pretty good price in that range. Now, RAM minimum is eight gigs, but I say eight gigs on, you know, a base system that you're just doing day-to-day stuff on. And if you have only eight gigs, only eight gigs in these days, right? Shut everything down when you go to do your editing because the more stuff you have open, especially browsers, browsers with a lot of tabs. Chrome, the memory eater it is. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. All of that stuff is going to eat RAM and every single image that you're processing, whether it's in Darktable, GIMP, Raw Therapy, any of those, as you're working on that image, you have stuff being built up in RAM for what you've done, so for your undo list, all of that different stuff that's going on. So close everything else down if you are going with the absolute minimum of 8 gigs. I say 16 is absolutely the best. So that way you can jump between different programs. You can have the program up, you know, like I use Rapid Photo Downloader, which is importing my images. That can stay open at the same time that I'm opening up Darktable. I can jump between Darktable and GIMP as I'm editing different images. Not everybody is going to be doing that, but you know that you're in a safer zone if you have at least 16 gigs of RAM. And just watch. So if you're you're on your computer and what have if they want to be in the danger zone? In the danger zone? You can go four gigabyte and watch stuff crash. I, it's funny. I was looking at laptops recently and a lot of them, 
come standard with eight gigabytes. And to me, that's just too low. But to a lot of people, that's it's right. perfectly fine. It's just it's not future proof because I feel right. like 16 is going to be the new standard that everybody's going to look for. But I also would say, and you probably agree, Wendy, when you're looking at these photo editing systems, if you could find a used one with, say, eight or 16 gigs, the core fourth gen i5, maybe higher in your price range, but also has an SSD, then you're going to have a much better experience than a spinning disk, although you may need the spinning disk for the extra storage. So maybe one of both. Yeah, I I prefer one of both, especially if you're using, you know, storing a lot of images and that kind of thing. Have offsite backup. Th- that's always best because you don't want to lose all the pictures of your family or whatever. But for me, I like to take the images that I'm done working on and they are moved to spinning rust, but everything that I'm currently working on is definitely on an SSD because that helps in the speed of saving or making changes to have that faster read write speed there. And definitely opening up the mass batches and moving them from your camera to your hard disk, all of that, it'll definitely speed up if you can find one. If you can find one, that's definitely the best way to go. And there's a lot of them used, you know, you're getting the laptop and it doesn't have a hard drive in it. So if you're going ahead and you're having to spend the money to put a hard drive in it, for the most part, SSDs have really come down in overall price. So you can always take and your active images that you're editing, have them on the SSD then you can move them off of the SSD when you're no longer working on them and just want to pull them up to look at them and that kind of thing. But having that faster read-write speed is definitely helpful in that. Now, when we're talking about Darktable, and it's the one I'm going to reference right now the most because it's the program that I'm most familiar with. So I've, if you've been listening to Deal and Extend, you'll know that I'm falling in love with raw therapy. But Darktable specifically says that if you are using more threads, then it'll help with thumbnail generation. Now, when it comes to exporting and, and that kind of thing, you're doing your editing. If you have more threads, you have to have enough memory allocated to each one of those threads to have one full image plus intermediates in that buffer. So in some cases, you're better off to tell it to use less threads if you don't have enough RAM space for each one of those to have what it needs in the buffer. So it's one of those places that typically just going off the the default settings, you're good. But if you're going in and playing and tweaking those, be careful what you're doing because you can crash your dark table by not having enough RAM allocated for each one of those threads in the process. This is why my server, Wendy, has 192 gigabytes of RAM. This is why, this reason. Now, I don't, photo, I don't edit any photos, but just in case I ever did, I've got plenty of RAM. <laughs> exactly. That, this that is might why. be a little overkill there. There's no yes. such thing. You're right. That, there's never too much hardware. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't believe I said that. (laughs) (laughs) 
So since we're on the topic of GPUs, Wendy, what is a GPU? I'm, I'm really curious because I, I have no idea. What is the minimum GPU you can get away with? Can you even use an embedded GPU for photo editing yeah. at your level, I mean? For, for me, no, because I want something with OpenCL support. When it comes to, as we were talking about, there, there's a lot of programs, even Darktable and especially Photoshop, that they're really not to the point where they're using the, the multi-threading as efficiently as they could be. So having a GPU and using OpenCL support. So it's not enough to just have a GPU. You have to have the OpenCL drivers installed for your GPU so that your photo editing software can take advantage of that GPU in the processing output. But the average person, when we're talking minimum specs, a GPU is actually not needed. You can get away with the day-to-day, hey, you know, I've taken these pictures as we played at the park and I'm wanting to do a little bit of tweaking, you know, nothing major. You don't need to have a GPU in your system. But if you are wanting a little extra processing power, you know, one of the 900 series NVIDIA cards or any of the RX line for AMD, those would all be great. They would give you just a little bit extra in the processing. The most important thing for image processing, not video, for image processing is the CPU and the base clock speed or the highest clock speed of a single core. That's where you're going to come into the most, how well does it work for me? So base, start with what CPU can I get or what CPU am I running and how much RAM do I have? If you have more in the budget where you can add a GPU on top of that, then go ahead and do it, but it's not absolutely necessary. I would say as well that if you are running a low spec machine and having some issues, you may try a different operating system. Like if you're using Windows 10, try Linux out because you can run Darktable on that still. And you're just going to have an OS that in general uses a lot less resources, which will free them up for some of your other work. Yeah. When I was doing some research for this topic in general and comparing, because it's been a really long time since I've run a Windows 10 machine day to day. That was one of the things that I was noticing is because Windows 10 uses so much more RAM just to run its base, having eight gigabytes of RAM is harder on a Windows 10 machine. So if you want to use that lower spec, running a Linux system is a great way to get the most out of your RAM and still be able to process images. Monitor colors is one of those things that I've been unsure as what recommendation to give because it really doesn't matter how good the colors are on your monitor if you're not calibrating that monitor. So for someone day-to-day, that kind of stuff, you'll be fine with the basic sRGB color scheme, you know, what the colors that are on most of the internet. The average person who's sending pictures to print because really having pictures on your computer are great, but having physical pictures are still absolutely wonderful on your walls or just in case something ever happens to the images digitally, 
having physical copies is nice. So on average, when you're sending pictures to print, there's an auto white balance correct. And those are typically great. It'll work fine for just having some some basic family pictures printed. So don't worry too much on having to have the best color on your monitor because unless you're color calibrating, it doesn't matter if you have the monitor with the best color ever. If it's not set correctly, your colors are still going to be off. Is there a particular brand of monitor that you typically look to buy? No, because it becomes in that... What can I get within my budget that fits my needs? So I haven't been too big on a specific brand, though BenQ makes extremely high-quality monitors with great color processing or color profiles on them. So if, if you're looking specifically for a fantastic monitor that you know is high-quality and going to have the color spectrum you need, that's definitely one of the places to look. Yeah, generally I found photographers that I've worked with BenQ is that name everybody looks for if you can afford one, but I think your advice is even better. Getting that color calibration is more important. The other one was ViewSonic. has a lot of yeah. professional lines that I know a lot of photographers and graphic designers like to use. Yeah, that that's another one that's really good and, and a big name brand when it comes to color and having good color those are both pretty big in the industry. Nice. Well, fantastic advice as usual, Wendy. And I love that you gave people a minimum spec instead of what's the perfect machine and you got some $6,000 lineup. This gives a lot of people the opportunity to go out there in the used market and pick something up that beats even these minimum specs or at least meets them and still have a great time editing photos, which is what it's all about. We all love to dream. We all want, you know, the system that will just knock it out of the park, but that's not always feasible. And so, yeah, you're right. That's where I was going with this overall camera corner this week is, okay, I'm wanting to get into photography. And that is one thing I've heard so much from our community members is you've got me excited about cameras. Now I need to learn how to edit. Well, this will give you a base start for what hardware you need to now use that camera and make some edits. I love it. Well, that's it. Our 20th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Can you guys believe we've made 20 episodes of Hardware Addicts? No. It's, it's like we're just, we're, we're, we're just pros at this or something. It gets better and better <laughs> every time. Thank you for listening, everyone out there, to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. We see you, by the way. Thank you for the amazing. You, you all must be talking to each other about this show because it's growing every episode. It leaps and bounds every month that's going up and we're so appreciative of that and you enjoy it. And so many of you are out there replying to us and talking to us about the content we cover on the show. And that just makes us feel good. So, but if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the amazing content on the Destination Linux network. Head to destinationlinux.network to check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available. There is so much to fill your brains with. And Michael just redid. You want to see how good Michael is in Software Sage, check out the new DestinationLinux.network website because he has redone it all and it is beautiful. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. See? Learn, build, innovate, and grow. 
We hope you enjoyed this show, and we'll see you next time for another minimum spec GPU-boosted episode of Hardware Addicts that doesn't have any electrical interference. HBM memory for life! Later.